So we want to begin this morning with a little bit of prayer. We are walking into Satan's territory this morning. We're talking a little bit about spiritual warfare, and that's always an interesting thing when you go to move in that territory. Interesting thing happened this morning. Uh, I gave, uh, last night I was working on slides and things in the office, and I left my, my uh, slide disc back here at the back on the stairs for the folks to take it up to the loft this morning. And then I, I went back and kind of reviewed my sermon, and I, I'm, I'm going through the slides, and I'm going, wait a minute. The key verse is missing. The slide with that most important verse is gone. So I, I quickly made a new version of that, and I took it up to the loft, and then I went back, and I kind of picked up where I left off, and I was going forward again. And the only other slide missing was the other key verse. All the other slides were there this morning. So that was kind of an interesting thing. I'm not quite sure how that happened because I went through it a couple of times last night and I could swear they were there. So funny things happen sometimes when you approach this subject. And so we're going to pray God's blessing and we're going to pray for God's protection and for God's leading. So would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. We trust that you will make all things right. We trust that that you will pave the, the way for this message. And Lord, we ask that you would put your hedge of protection around us, guard us by your angels. And we rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. You have no place here. This is not your place, and we are not yours. We belong to Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that you will open your word to us, reveal yourself and your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So according to Ephesians 6 and many other passages in the Bible, we are in a spiritual battle. We are instructed in Scripture to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. As believers, our weapons are not, when we're facing evil, are not guns or swords or even bows and arrows. You know, um, our main weapons are truth, righteousness, Readiness to share the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We wear spiritual armor because we battle a spiritual enemy. Isn't that true? The spiritual world we know influences the physical world all the time. It happens, there's this interaction, this thing we don't see, but it's there. Revelation calls Satan the dragon, and the dragon and his demons are often behind the scenes pushing and prodding and manipulating and tempting and corrupting. And this is true on a very personal level, and it's also true on a much larger level if you think about countries at war, for example. We don't try to see the devil behind every door, but we do recognize that the forces of evil are very active in the world in which we live. And that's going to be true until Jesus comes. Sometimes I know it might feel like we're just throwing stones at giants. But the most powerful weapon that you have in your arsenal is prayer. We ourselves are not powerful at all. Not when it comes to facing spiritual forces. But God is all-powerful. And, and when we pray, we're asking the all-powerful God to act on our behalf 
and on behalf of others. And God tells us to come to him, to pray, and, and not just about the really, really big things, but also about the small things in life. Because he's our father and he cares about what happens to us and we're able to approach his throne and we're able to share with him the things that burden our lives and see God move there. We've been uh, in a teaching series here for the last several weeks uh, on Revelation. The series is called Famous Last Words. And, and I want to remind you of what we said at the very beginning. I want to remind you that we said that John, here under the direction of Jesus, wrote Revelation both to warn and to encourage believers. Uh, you might feel like, okay, there's not a lot encouraging there. What's, I see all this dark stuff. But in between the lines, there's an awful lot of encouraging stuff. Uh, he wrote it to warn the first century believers of some hard times that were happening and some things that were beginning to come, beginning with some really intense persecution in the here and now and where they were at right at that time. He wrote also to give them hope. And he kept saying this thing over and over again. If you're faithful, if you're steadfast, if you follow Jesus, you really have nothing to fear no matter what comes. Now, this promise is not that they would never experience harm. We know from our own lives that that's not true, right? But that their eternal spirit could not be touched. Our hope is in life eternal. Our hope is in a new heaven and a new earth where no enemy can attack us, no pain can afflict us, no devil can touch us, no more crying tears of grief, and no more death. That's where our hope is. Our hope is and always will be in Jesus who completed the work, the most important work on the cross at Calvary, right? So let's try to remember that today uh, when we hit some of what seems to be like scary stuff because we already, already know what's at the end of the book. We already know how it turns out. Jesus wins and so do we if we continue to be faithful and follow as we uh, go through this series, I want to encourage you to get into your Bible, and I'll spend more time in Scripture. You know, we're, we're coming into this, and, and I'll, I'll tell you up front, I am not going to read every word or dwell on every theme or break down every tiny little piece, because there's just too much. We're sort of dealing with, uh, with more thematic things, so I encourage you to read through these chapters that we're looking at right now, and read through the end of the book of Revelation, and you'll know what's coming, and you'll know where we're at. Reading ahead, we'll, you'll get a whole lot more out of what we're doing on Sunday mornings. The point of Revelation isn't necessarily all the little details. This is a vision where a lot of things are symbolic. And so I encourage you to think about the big picture first before you try to break down all the little details. It'll make a whole lot more sense to you. So let's uh, pick up where we left off last week. The last thing I said to you last week when I left the pulpit was, uh, or, or two weeks ago when we, we did this, I said, you know, you'll notice I skipped over Armageddon. So we'll come back and we'll start with Armageddon. So that's where we're starting this morning. Um, let me start with a little survey here this morning. Based on all the books that have been written, all the movies that have been made, the volumes of sermons that you've heard preached, 
How often do you think the word Armageddon appears in Scripture? How many would say maybe 50 times? Anybody? Anybody for 30? Maybe 20? Anybody for 20? All right. Okay, so we're getting down in there. Um, the truth of the matter is, the word Armageddon is only mentioned one single time in Scripture. Just once in Revelation 16, 16. Uh, other verses might refer to it, but the specific mention of Armageddon is only once. <clears throat> and so I got curious and I Googled Armageddon and I wanted to see what it's, how many entries there were and just the word Armageddon and I came up with 53 million entries for something that appears one time in one verse in Scripture. You know, and we spend a lot of time when we look at the future afraid, afraid of this battle of Armageddon that's coming. Uh, I, I got also curious, went over to Amazon. You know, you can do a lot of reading on this subject. So I went over to Amazon to see how many books there were, and, and I found that there were more than 10,000 books with the, the title or Armageddon in the title. And so there's a lot of reading out there if you really want to do all that research. So uh, let me start with... The basics. Armageddon comes from a word right there. Har is mountain. Har is mountain. And Megiddo is an actual ancient city. Uh, it, it existed for thousands of years. And um, so you put those two together, you get Har Megiddo or Harmageddon. That's where it comes. And, and so Armageddon is a location, sort of. Um, there is no mountain. It doesn't exist. Uh, our, uh, Megiddo uh, is a tell. It's a place where many generations of people lived, and they, they built and rebuilt on top of one another, and so, you know, gradually the ground rose up a little. So, so you get this, what they call a tell, this rise where this little city lived. Except there's no mountain. There isn't a mountain there. It's likely that Armageddon, the name at least, is symbolic because basically there's just a bump in the road. But the name Mount is given to it because, you know, in so many different instances you find in the scripture, a mountain is a symbol or a place of conflict. And so John wants you to know, hey, there is a conflict coming. Now, while there's no mountain, there is this vast plain there called the Plains of Megiddo. And um, in ancient times, there were some major battles that were held there. The Battle of Megiddo was fought in the 15th century BC. It was fought between the Egyptians and the Canaanites on this vast plain. Another famous battle happened in 609, and it was called, and you might not be surprised by this name, it was called the Battle of Megiddo. <laughs> you know, kind of natural name. Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt brought his forces against the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And they did that on the plains of Megiddo. Now, this is important to biblical history because the southern kingdom of Judah was in between those two things. And so there was a conflict. And Josiah, the good king of, of the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, he would not allow them to pass through their territory, to pass through the city of Jerusalem. And so he went out to meet them at the road, and they killed him. 
And they took the land, and the southern kingdom became a vassal state of Egypt. And if you want to read more about that, you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 35. So here we have this vision. And John is trying to communicate what he's seeing, what God is revealing to him, what Jesus is revealing to him. And, and so if you were trying to form a picture in the heads of the people who lived in that day and were familiar with their own history, uh, and you wanted to talk about a huge battle that would take place, what would you use? He uses Armageddon. He uses the plains of Megiddo because... He wants them to understand that, that there's something immense in this battle. There's something huge in this battle. He's trying to communicate the immensity of this confrontation that's going to happen between the forces of good, Jesus and his angels, and the forces of evil led by Satan and the demonic. The plain of Megiddo is a natural choice. It was such a natural battlefield that Napoleon, when he was touring the area, he said that this was the greatest natural battlefield in the world. I mean, this is a huge space. It's 15 or 20 miles long. That's a long space. Now, maybe it was suitable or more suitable for the kind of battle that Napoleon did and more suitable for the kind of battle that the Egyptians did. I'm not quite sure that makes a huge difference today in having all that flat land. People in John's day would instantly know at this mention what level of confrontation was taking place. It's going to be huge. It's beyond description. And what's important here is not so much the place as that this is a massive battle. N.T. Wright says that, that John's point here is that all the powers of evil must be brought to one place so that they can be dealt with by God. So let me pick up in Revelation 16. That's the part we skipped over uh, before we briefly jump into Revelation 17 and 18 this morning, uh, I want to start with Revelation 13 and, or, or um, 16, 13, and 14. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So you have this picture. We have kind of an unholy trinity, right? We have the dragon. We have the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And, and the mouths, there are, these frogs are coming out. And um, you know, we have the second beast is now being called the false prophet. Of course, we know the dragon is Satan, and uh, we know from our previous experiences that these represent Rome and the Roman system, the system of evil. Now, I, I think frogs are used here because everybody in the ancient world hated them. I mean, really hated them. Uh, in Jewish laws, they were unclean, and the, the Egyptians felt they were disgusting, which is why when one of the, one of the plagues that was given to Egypt was frogs, you know, and it was just a disgusting thing to them in the time of Moses. They were considered gross and vile things, and John uses them here to symbolize demons because demons are repulsive creatures too. 
These demons are said to be the same ones that helped deceive the people in the Roman Empire with their signs used to trick people into worshiping the emperor as God. In fact, that is what demons do, isn't it? They deceive. And like the frogs of the plagues, these demons contaminate and corrupt everything. And here, in this passage, these demons are sent out or they go out to gather the kings of the earth together at Mount Megiddo. Well, as you look at this and you look at the context, it seems to me that the kings in this passage represent pretty much the same kind of imagery that we see in the book of Ephesians when we're reading about spiritual warfare. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the power of Christ that he placed in you at rebirth. And he says that that's the same power that is far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus' power is over every king, every king on earth and anything in the heavenlies. No power at all is above Christ. Revelation 16, 16, the one that mentions Armageddon, says that these frogs, these demons, gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We've already explained what that is. Now, I want to remind you, when we look at wars in a symbolic context, when we look at them in places like Revelation, that our war is not against earthly forces. Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These spiritual forces, they, they still are active, aren't they? They still infiltrate, infiltrate, and they deceive today. They try to have influence on your thoughts try to get hold of your heart and harden it against God, to try to gain a foothold in your spirit, to try to wrestle you away from God's spirit. And that's why we're told to put on the full armor of God. Did, did you know that salvation is, just salvation is spiritual warfare? That's why it's listed in the weapons of warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. Salvation is part of it. Salvation is doing battle with the enemy. And that's why Satan fights so hard to keep someone from coming to Jesus. And that's why the angels rejoice so hard when even one sinner receives the Lord and comes to Christ. Now, in good faith this morning, I want to tell you that there are a lot of theories about the Battle of Armageddon, all kinds of them. And there are plenty of people who believe that this is a very real physical battle that will take place in the end times before or around the return of Jesus. Billy Graham taught that. Billy Graham believed that. Uh, and so do many other reputable people. And there are lots of scholars and famous Christians who believe this. All you got to do is ask Google about that, and you'll learn all kinds of stuff. Now, I myself am at a different camp. I'm in the camp of people like John Stott, N.T. Wright, Eugene Peterson, Michael Gorman, people like that, who, who believe that this is a symbolic 
uh, or this section is symbolic of the final conflict between good and evil. And I believe this for a whole bunch of reasons, but, but primarily because of the context, where it's placed in the vision, in the context of the book of Revelation. Now, in the end, whether you think this is a physical battle or a spiritual one, it is about a final conflict between the spiritual forces of evil and the Lamb of God. And I'll give you a hint with a word borrowed from Eugene Peterson. Lamb power wins. Lamb power wins. So now I'm going to jump from Armageddon to Babylon, and hopefully you'll see the connection. Remember that Revelation is a vision, and so it doesn't always follow chronicle order, and, and you can't always say, well, this is what happens next, because it's not what happens next, it's what John sees next in his vision that's important, right? And, and this is very heavy with symbols. Revelation 17 picks up after the final outpouring of God's wrath that we saw a little bit earlier, but it's also jumbled together with this spiritual battle theme. You might want to read along in your Bible. I'm going to read the first six verses of Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And then the angel carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes. Nope, it's going all the way to the end. Go on back there. There it is. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so we're talking here about the martyrdom of the saints, the putting to death of those who would follow God. So in, in John's vision... We have a new figure. We have a figure of a prostitute. And that's another image of Rome and everything that it stands for and of Babylon. This is the so-called whore of Babylon. And Rome is called Babylon here because there's an awful lot of similarity between ancient Babylon and Rome. How do we know this is Rome? As you go on a little bit further, it talks about the seven hills on which this, this uh, beast sits. Rome and Babylon stood for many of the same things. John Stott has this list that he put together that I think is really helpful. He says that there have been many Babylons down through history. These are powers and systems that corrupt, that don't honor God. He says they have six things in common. Idolatry, immorality, extravagance and luxury, sorcery and magic. Tyranny and oppression leading to the martyrdom of God's people and self-deification, making themselves like God. Babylon and Rome had all of those same things. 
They are symbolic of the whole system of evil, which is about to come into a final confrontation here. The kings who gather together, who are symbolized in this passage by the horns on the head of the beast, it says in verses 13 and 14, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. When you think of this level of confrontation, when you think of good versus evil on an ultimate scale, on this final gigantic battle, Think, I want you to think about Jesus and his earthly ministry. Jesus in his earthly ministry confronted evil all the time. Did he seem the least bit concerned about confronting the demonic? At any point, is there a single passage anywhere that suggests that he ever felt challenged by them in any way? Was there even the slightest hint that he didn't have the authority and the power to command them? Why not? Because he's king of kings. And he's lord of lords. And this is Jesus, second person of the Holy Trinity, coexistent and equal with God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus who was involved right there in the beginning in creation. Should we have any question that Jesus can defeat the power of a city or a nation or an empire or even all the forces of hell? Should we have any doubt? Satan may challenge us, but he does not, he is not a challenge at all to Jesus. Think about that. So now let's go back to this grand scale. Does it make any difference? It really doesn't, does it? No matter what happens, Jesus is always more powerful. You know, I think, you know, today I, I hear sometimes there are, are some philosophies that kind of try to put Satan and Jesus co-equal. Um, the Book of Mormon does that. It, you know, makes them spiritual brothers and, and sort of co-equal. And there's this wrestle and... There's no wrestle. Jesus wins every time. Hands down, without even hardly trying, I would think. One thing we know for sure when we read about this confrontation is that God will not allow evil to go on forever. And that seems to be a lot of what these final chapters in Revelation are about. The coming end of evil. It foreshadows the historical end of the evil empire that centered in Rome, you know, that we said that first and foremost, the, the book of Revelation applies to the people who heard it first in the first century. And so it foreshadows the fall of that evil empire, which will fall in 476, but it's also looking ahead to the end of evil itself. It's symbolic of a time in our ultimate future. The ultimate end of evil is the beginning of God's new work. That's what's so awesome about it. 
The forces of evil are going to align themselves against the lamb, but the lamb is going to defeat them easily. Now, a theme we're going to see as we go through the next chapters over the next several weeks is the wedding supper of the lamb. And it's a beautiful image. You already know that the end of Revelation has the wedding supper. This is the final time, you know, this place where God's church, the bride of Christ, is fully united with the Lamb of God. Those who believe in Jesus and receive Jesus are made pure, robes washed in white, ready for a wedding, and a time of joining together when we will be with Jesus forever. That's what we're promised. This beautiful image of a wedding. What a contrast between the bride of Christ and this symbol that John's talking about here, this, this whore of Babylon. This woman aligned with the system of evil in Rome and Babylon, which, which John portrays as a prostitute who's willingly aligned with the beast and under the power of Satan. Two images. We have the bride of Christ, portrayed throughout the rest of Revelation here. And we have the prostitute. And it kind of screams at us a little bit of a choice that needs to be made, right? It screams, you have to choose. How will you choose? How will you live? Who will you follow? Will you follow God? Or will you follow the way of corruption to defeat and to death? It's a war of ultimates, and there can be one winner only. You know, it's like the story of the Highlander. There can be only one. The vision portends that Babylon is going to fall. We know that happens pretty quick. Babylon fell, and Rome will fall too. But it's not just them, it's what they represent. Now, if we move into chapter 18, it's a very long lament, a funeral song of sorts about the fall of Rome and Babylon and all the things that they represent. And at the beginning of that, an angel comes and proclaims, Babylon is fallen. And it says, all these nations that once thought Rome was the center of the universe they cry out in a series of woes. Now, whenever you read that word woe in Scripture, W-O-E, woe, uh, whenever you read that, it's always connected with grief and with loss. In fact, many passages connected to funerals. This is Rome's funeral. This is the beginning of the funeral of all evil represented by Babylon. We're coming to the final defeat, to judgment, to the locking away permanently of evil. Eugene Peterson says, the last word is that every form and source of evil is going to be banished from history. Now, do you look forward to that? Is that a promise? That's a promise. That's not something to be afraid of. Now here's, I want to read part of this funeral woe, this funeral dirge that's sung here for the evil systems that are represented by Rome and Babylon. Just a little piece of it here. You can read the rest on your own. Woe, 
Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. That's the end of that kind of life. That's the end of that pursuit. That's the end of those dominating systems that subjugate others. As we said, God will only allow evil to stand for so long. He won't stand for injustice forever. There will be an accounting. And I hope that brings you comfort that one day there will be justice in all things and justice for all wrongs. Think about yourself for a second. You know, maybe one day that, that broken heart that you've had for so long, that will be mended. That's a promise. Any injustice that you've experienced in life will finally be put right. And as you follow Christ in all things, he's preparing you for the ultimate day of victory. And it's a wedding day. He's preparing you to be his bride. In Christ, your sins are gone. Your chains are broken. You are released and your future is certain. That is the great message that we're hearing here. And that's the message we're going to continue to hear as we proceed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope and the promise that we see in your word. We embrace you fully. I ask that you would teach us to walk in your ways, that you prepare us for the day of your return. Lord, release us from our fears about the end times and distant battles. Help us to trust that you are already the victor. You've already defeated the laws of sin and death at Calvary. And through you, we have the promise of eternal life with you in a new heaven and in a new earth. And for this, we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.